2: Welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and my co-host Larry Dersham, and I have a terrific guest for you tonight. One in the first half, one in the second half, both equally notorious and interesting for different reasons. Before I uh, step on Larry's um, uh, thunder for the first half, let me just tell you who we have for the second half. Uh, After the break, we're going to be joined by Sheriff David Clark, who you probably would recognize by his trademark cowboy hat, having seen him on Fox News and Newsmax, formerly the sheriff of Milwaukee County. So he's going to be talking with us during the second half. But during the first half, we're going to have a special guest that's going to be talking about some cutting-edge news that just came out this week. Larry, who do we have on the line?
3: Yes, Wendy. Our first guest today is James Roguski. He has been calling out government and corporate lies and propaganda for decades. He was the first to discover the 13 amendments to the World Health Alliance's international health regulations that would have ceded U.S. sovereignty over medical emergencies to the director of the WHO, the Ethiopian communist Tetros. In part because of Mr. Roguski's efforts, all of these amendments were defeated. And now James has found a new outrage that we must alert America to. Welcome to the program,
4: James. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: James, thank you for joining us on this Saturday night. I know that yesterday there was some very big news about Pfizer and Moderna really basically authorizing COVID shots to babies and toddlers. And I know that you've been very outspoken about your feelings, your thoughts about this. And we would love to know a little bit more about your point of view. And like we always say with our expert witnesses on the stand, the foundation for being able to convey the information that you are.
4: Well, you know, one of the things that um, has served me well is I try to stick to evidence as opposed to hearsay or opinion. Um, You know, I certainly have my opinions, but that's a separate conversation. The evidence that was presented um, to the FDA by Pfizer and Moderna, in my view, is incriminating. They actually clearly stated that For infants 6 to 23 months old, the vaccine efficacy is only 14%. And after the first dose, um, the children, little infants in the study were actually 30% more likely to get COVID. There were 98 participants in their trial of that age that got COVID despite you know, being in a trial to to be vaccinated. And in the older group, there were 127 children who got COVID. And so if anyone is under the illusion that, you know, getting these injections is going to prevent COVID, it, it actually triggered more COVID after the first shot. Now, the most egregious part of this is the fact that during the course of the trial, more than two-thirds of the children, uh, you know, disappeared, dropped out of the trial, were not followed up with. And if anybody was uh, an editor of a medical journal and they were presented with a trial where two-thirds of the initial participants were not around at the end of the trial, uh, you know, I am pretty sure they'd get laughed You know, out of the room if they were trying to get that peer reviewed and published. It's an abomination that the FDA um, didn't even ask questions about, hey, what happened to all the missing kids?
3: You know, what's interesting too is that a lot of times, because I'm a grandfather now, that when a baby turns six months old, they give them all types of shots. Has there been a study about how this new COVID jab? will interact with all these other shots that are be given uh, will be given to young babies?
4: The answer is a clear and simple no, but I'd like to expand on that clear and simple. It's It's not so much that the, um, the uh, vaccines or the jabs interact with each other. What they do is they kick the little baby's immune system, you know, into high gear, not just for one thing, but for another and another and another and another. It's bad enough to be giving misdirection to an immune system, um, you know, and, and allowing it to handle that one thing. But to do that two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, there have been, to my knowledge, no studies whatsoever about these, you know, combining things, you know, batching them together. And a lot of times, you know, children will show up and and they, oh, well, you know, you're way behind. You've got to catch up. And they give them an ungodly number of injections. Uh, There's no science behind that at all. There's no safety studies behind that at all. It's an abomination.
2: You know, James, um, one of the things that we hear a lot um, regarding this debate is, you know, the different methods of fighting the disease. I guess, you know, adults and children fight it differently and have very different results in terms of who gets infected and how sick people get. Is it still the case? And we heard this right from the beginning of the pandemic, that for whatever reason, there's a much lower mortality rate and even... Correct me if I'm wrong, but haven't we also learned that younger people are less likely to become gravely ill from COVID than, you know, the 65 and overpopulation? Is that still true? Are those still the facts?
4: Um, everything you said is absolutely correct. If you look at, you know, some of the CDC's own data, you know, they'll have graphs that show the peaks uh, by age group. Okay. And, yes, there are large peaks in the elderly and, you know, older people and, and, and so forth, you cannot even see the blip on the chart. You know, it's as flat as Kansas, right, for for young children. And and so now that's not to say, you know, that one person or, or some people may have a problem, but there's a huge discrepancy between someone who died because of COVID and died um they had something else going on. And, you know, people need to realize that hospitals receive a 20% bonus money if they get a positive COVID test on anybody who's in the hospital for any reason. And and so the the incentives are just absurd to keep testing people until they get a positive test. It doesn't mean that the person died because they got COVID, it it means that they were tested often enough so that the hospital could get a 20% commission. And that's part of the CARES Act. And if people are unaware of that, just ask yourself, if you were doing business and somebody said to you, well, if you do business in this fashion, you'll make 20% on everything you do when that person's in the hospital, do you think you would be being given a perverse incentive to Things that made you a lot of money but didn't necessarily help the patient. People need to know that there's a twenty percent bonus for all hospitals if they get a positive COVID test.
3: Uh, James, is not it true that these drugs, these jabs, are still in the experimental status? They aren't not they are not fully approved by the FDA. And then that goes to a, another question. In your opinion, what's behind this? I the little kids basically don't get this disease, and if they do, they don't even know they have it. So why would they put an experimental drug? We know what it's doing to the teenage boys, especially the, the myocarditis, the pericarditis, and so forth. Why are they doing this, in your opinion?
4: Well, you asked a couple of questions in there. Um, first off, yes, it is only um, just on Friday uh, by the um, FDA been authorized for emergency use. And, yes, it's part of the trial. And, and people need to realize that there were many, um, several thousand children enrolled in the trial. But the crux of it, the data that they used, was, was not even about the couple of hundred kids who were left over to determine that they were maybe 14 percent effective in you know young babies. That's not what they did. What they did is they used what they call a proxy called immunobridging. And it, it, we don't have enough time to get into explaining it here, but it's all, it's very similar to the shtick of you know somebody being taken for a ride by somebody who says they're going to sell them the Brooklyn Bridge. If you fall for the story and if you get sold the story by the FDA about immunobridging, Okay, Well, you really need to do your homework because it, it's just an incredible story. Um, in terms of why, um, you know, I, I honestly, I, I try to not get into ascribing intent or my opinion as to why these people are doing this. What I know is that most parents do it for a why that is not necessarily the health of their children, right, uh, James? Cold,
3: we are getting a little bit. Sh- into, excuse me, we're getting uh, a little bit short on time. I want How do people find you so they can look you up and and study the work that you're doing before we run out of time?
2: Give us a website. Okay. That'd be great. Um,
4: all of my information is just have to spell my name. That's the hard part. J a m e s R o g u s k i dot com. that's not an email address that's a website don't put a www in front of it it's james thank
2: you so much uh, for the great thank information
4: I it. Um, to me. our
2: listeners we need to take a we need to take a short commercial break but please don't touch that dial we will have a lot of colorful lively commentary on the other side of the break we want to thank our our guest for joining us the first half um for the great information you're listening to today with dr wendy we'll be right back We have a very uh, interesting, notorious, and famous guest with us on the line for the second half. Larry, without further ado, who do we have on the line?
3: Sure, Wendy. After nearly four decades in law enforcement, Sheriff David Clark has found innovative ways to serve the public that gives him the freedom to reach millions of Americans with his message, unfiltered by the confines of holding an elected office. While serving as the sheriff of Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, Sheriff Clark developed a passion for political commentary. He is fondly referred to as the people's sheriff because he has the natural ability to explain complicated national controversies in a way that everyday people can understand. Welcome to the program, Sheriff Clark.
5: Larry, Doctor, it's my pleasure to be on with you and hello to your listeners.
2: Now, Sheriff Clark, most of us know you by your traditional uh, cowboy hat on television and your fiery rhetoric, and it's it's just a real pleasure to have you on the show today. But one of the things that really struck Larry and I as career trial attorneys is, you know, we know that there are offices that are supposed to be nonpartisan, and we know that there are other offices that are supposed to be very political. But we're talking law enforcement here, and I understand you ran for office in a democratically controlled area, sort of as a Democrat. But I know there's more to the story there, and I'm hoping you can fill us in what that was like running with your conservative views kind of as a Democrat.
5: Sure. You know, first of all, in terms of the political parties, I think they're a big part of the problem. I really do. It's caused a lot of the divide that we have in this country and the office of sheriff is a partisan race i think it is in most states um there has been talk, and i tried to get a conversation going in wisconsin to get the legislature to maybe take it out of the partisan realm but you'd be surprised a lot of sheriffs like it that way so you know getting that uh change has been heavy lifting but anyway milwaukee county is a heavily democrat controlled area as a matter of fact Milwaukee County has not had a Republican sheriff in about 75 years to show you how deeply entrenched the Democrat Party is. Wow. Parties like it. They like the sheriff to be partisan, you know, a part of that party. I've never belong i never belonged to a political party. Uh, when you apply to run as sheriff, you know, you fill out the papers, you have to declare a party. Now, you can do independent, but, look, you know, running as an independent, you're not likely to win in, in, a, in a deeply political area. So uh, I ran into a Democrat, give myself a chance to, to survive. I didn't think I was going to beat the odds of that. At the time it was like 60 years. There hadn't been a Republican sheriff. I didn't want to try to define the odds. I wanted to lead a law enforcement agency. And um, you know, when it comes to law and order, it, it's straightforward with me. And apparently I got elected four times in a heavy, heavily Democrat area. Wow. Um, You know, apparently the Democrat voters said I like his style of uh, um, of public safety of law and order. So, um, you know, the the, the partisan stuff, I suppose if I would have had to describe myself, I was probably more of an old school Democrat, you know, a Jack Kennedy Democrat, you know, a Truman Democrat, uh, Scoop Jackson Democrat. But those don't exist anymore. Those were more moderate, sensible. Um, Democrats, those were the ones that my parents grew up listening to and following. And so I I said, if I had to describe what kind of, you know, Democrat I would be, it's more in the old school tradition that doesn't exist anymore. I wouldn't have a chance. People won't have a chance running as a moderate Democrat today.
3: Well, wow. uh, Sheriff Clark, Congress is currently busily working on gun control laws, like red flag laws, and to limit gun ownership. In your opinion, Sheriff Clark, will these laws work? Will they help?
5: Not at all. It's a big swing in the mess and it's because they're working on the wrong thing. Every time we have one of these sensational killings you know some people call it mass killings i call them sensational because that's what the perpetrator is trying to do um in committing that kind of mass mayhem you know the first the 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 knee-jerk reaction is the left gets out the democrat i'm sorry their their gun control agenda and they see what they can accomplish off of it but that's why you know these things i I don't i don't believe that when all is said and done and i read the, the framework of the Senate compromise, but we haven't seen the text, you know, haven't seen the long written in full text. Sure. That's going to make a lot of Republicans, I think, bail out uh, in the end on the vote, but I guess we'll have to see. But, you know, when you're working on when you focus on a gun, you're working on the wrong thing. You got to look at the some of the other things that, that you can have a decent um, chance of having, you know, maybe moving the needle a little, little bit in terms of making a difference. How about target hardening? You know, how about things like uh law enforcement officers in schools um but you know we we, we, that would be that's not the political stuff so the 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 parties aren't interested in that sort of thing um you know know, there's 400 million guns you know i was
2: going to say one of the things things, guns go ahead
5: sorry uh, i'm sorry there's 400 million guns in circulation in the united states you're never going to get all these guns off the street so we got to do something that's practical
2: in terms of doing something that's practical, you know, you gave me a really great segue to a question I wanted to ask you from your perspective, being the sheriff of a, a large county. You know, we see crime spiking in certain areas of the country. And depending on who is driving the narrative, or I should say, attempting to drive the narrative. There are just a variety of explanations being given for these spikes in different parts of the country. But from your unique perspective, having actually been in charge, been the lead law enforcement officer in a large county, what do you think is driving some of the crime spikes in some of these big cities?
5: Failed urban public policy, liberal uh, public policy that has gone on for the last 10 years or so. Look, we just came out of a period of, of crime declines historic levels of crime decline decline coming out of the 90s when law enforcement officers were engaging in a strategy called order maintenance activities, broken windows, they they like to call it. But at that time, too, the prosecutor's office and the courts were all singing off the same sheet of music. If you arrested a bad guy, and it was a serious enough offense. You were, sure, you were certain to get a prosecution out of it. It was certain to go to court, and you were certain to get a plea bargain or or a, um, you know, pleading guilty or a conviction. And these judges were willing to send these perpetrators away for the longest period of time allowable by law. We got away from that. We started buying into all of this nonsense, this behavior modification this programs called like second chance programs for. A, Career criminal who has a rap sheet and arm long, not a second chance. So they come along with these nice sounding things, at, you know, out of these schools of um, social welfare, and they don't work. We know they don't work. You know, they're they're failed policies. And in the end, when you don't lock up the people responsible for doing this, it, and it's a small segment of the population, the career criminals, but when you don't keep them separated from society, and that's what incarceration is, is for. They're going to come back out. They're going to engage in that behavior again. And this, this whole crazy revolving door of justice keeps going.
3: Well, it seems, Sheriff Clark, that the left has stirred up distrust and even unfortunately, hatred for the police with the help of the left-leaning media and organizations like Black Lives Matter that are calling for even defunding the police. I couldn't believe that when I heard that come out. What do we need to do to make large American cities safe again? And what's up with this defunding the police? What's their plan of action? Social workers?
5: Well, excuse me, they would like to think so, but uh, that's not going to work out real well either. And to be honest with you, social workers they're not saying it right now. They don't want anything to do with this. They know it's too dangerous. They know that a lot of stuff that they engage in is experimental and uh, look, you know, the law enforcement officer is the first line of defense in, in these communities at street level and the law enforcement officers, they basically have the overwhelming support of the law buying people in these communities, including in the high crime area. Okay. These attacks on police that started recently, this this goes back to the 60s. Uh, the same thing happened. It was the same uh, leftist uh, individuals that were talking, you know, or were criticizing police and attacking police. And, you know, what they're trying to do is they're trying to weaken the rule of law. They're trying to weaken... Uh, law and order, and you have to get through the police line in order to be able to do that. So they attack the police because the police are on the front lines. Look, police are not perfect. Police agencies are not perfect. But in these high-crime areas, it is the last chance that people have, and usually poor, black, and Hispanic, that's who lives there, uh, it's the last opportunity they have you know, to live some semblance of a civil life, and it's to have law enforcement law enforcement officers out there aggressively, um, enforcing the law. but Right now, law enforcement officers have taken a step back. They're surveying this, uh, these malicious attacks, not just the physical attacks because assaults on police officers are up over the last couple of years, but also the threat of being criminally indicted for something that uh, they, they were involved in that went wrong through no fault of their own. Those these are politically motivated prosecutions. So cops are saying to themselves, I'm not taking these chances. I got, a, I got a mortgage. I got kids in college. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle uh, someday when she gets married. And so, the police are not aggressive like they were in the 80s and 90s. Under the uh, the cop stat, the, the broken windows and the order maintenance activity, stop questioning frisk. That's being aggressive. That's an aggressive strategy, which is passed Supreme Court tests, by the way, which you know, but that's not often uh, uh, said in in the media. But until the the, the Officers feel they're going to get the political support and now the ranks are down. You've had mass resignations, you've had um, early retirements. And so now they're understaffed. It's going to take a long time to build that that staffing back up. I don't know how long it's going to take to get out of this, but I think it's going to start when the political class backs off, keeps their mouth shut after these um, these high profile events that you can't really control because of social media now, but they need to take a step back. Right, and, and and they don't do that right now. That's the first start, and then yeah. properly uh, funding them, funding these agencies, things like that—a strategy, an actual strategic plan, turning cops back into crime fighters, for heaven's sakes, not making them social workers, which is one, which is one of the uh, ideas of these.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, we we're out of time, there. Sheriff. We have
2: to leave it yeah. there, Sheriff. Thank you so much for for uh, sharing your perspective Thank with you us. So Thank you so much, Thank you to our listeners. You're listening to today with Dr. Wendy headlines with the Silver Lining. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Saturday, and God bless you.